Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. If you could please stand, we'll begin in prayer. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Amen. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. You can sit. It's okay. I know it's hot outside. I want to commend you all for coming this evening. Just know that it's a lot hotter than in hell than it is outside. Our speaker this evening received a Master of Arts degree from Dallas University. I learned that from Dr. Marshner, by the way. That was one of the important points in theology, that it's a lot hotter than, in hell than it is on Christendom's campus. Yeah. He received an art, a Master of Arts degree from Dallas University and a licentiate and doctorate from the John Paul II Institute. And in 1977, Dr. Marshner became a founding faculty member at Christendom College and has since served continuously as professor of theology. A well-known author and Protestant convert to the Catholic Church, Dr. William Marshner has lectured widely on topics ranging from Islam to the heresy of modernism and is a regular presenter here at the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are delighted to welcome him back. Please join me in welcoming Dr. William Marshner. He is, by the way, the only professor I would allow to get up here with shorts on. <laughs> I uh, cannot uh, deny the appropriateness of that last remark. <laughs> I would like you to please forgive the absurd outfit in which I appear before you. It has to do with the confusion among the suits in my closet. and. Uh, Never mind. It's All right. Now, I don't know how it is these days, but when I was young, uh, you couldn't go very far in the city where I grew up without running into an evangelical who would ask you, are you saved? Okay. That was the opening question. Are you saved? And... Um, they never seemed to realize that there were two distinct senses to the question. Okay? The first sense is, are you presently in God's grace? Are you in a state of grace at the moment? Okay? And uh, if I gave that answer, then they would, what do you mean, state of grace, what's that? And, uh, that's Catholic talk, isn't it? I, uh, the other sense of the question 
is are you predestined to be in God's grace for eternity? That's amounting to say, are you one of the elect? Now then, uh, these are two very different questions. But if you are a certain type of Calvinist, uh, you don't think they are distinct questions. Okay? The argument goes like this. Look, God does not give his grace in vain. Ergo, he doesn't give it to people who aren't going to end up saved. Giving it to the non-elect would be a waste. Interesting argument? Well, apparently, St. Peter disagreed with it. I want you, those of you who have Bibles, to open up to the second epistle of Peter. Chapter 2. Verses 20 to 22. You should all write this on your cuff or something so that you have it handy the next time you run into a Calvinist. <laughs> now, let's see. Whom shall I call upon to read? Who will serve as lector? Lector! For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For if, for it would be, for it, one second, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to his own vomit, and the sow is washed only to wallow in this mire. Again, there you are, okay? In other words, Catholics maintain that you can be in a state of grace now, and yet through future sins, future weakness of will, future apostasy, lose the grace you now have and turn away from salvation, right? So for us, these two questions are very different. Am I currently in a state of grace? I can have reasonable grounds to say yes. Am I predestined for eternity? Well, that's a little bit of a harder thing, yes? Because I don't know what I will do in the future. I uh, daren't hope in myself for the future. I have to put my hope in Christ and his faithfulness to his promises, okay? But as far as my own faithfulness is concerned, eh, it's iffy, right? Right, well that is the Catholic perspective and there it is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. You can taste of the way of righteousness, you can have the knowledge of the Lord Jesus and turn away again. Ergo, God does not think that he's wasting his grace to give the graces of faith, hope, and charity to people who won't end up in heaven. Not at all. Okay? 
And it is true that God doesn't give his grace in vain, but what that means is God always gives his grace for the purpose of moving you towards salvation. Now, together with these two questions, there comes a second issue having to do with what we can know about it. Um, always in my youth, when I was challenged, are you saved? Ah, ha, ha, ha. I would answer, I hope so. Huh? I have good hope. And they would say, you hope so? How can that be good enough? Don't you know so? You ever run into this? Yeah. Uh, can you know so that you are currently in God's grace? Can you know that? Well, Luther maintained you could know it. Uh, at least this is one of the... As with Luther, often there are two sides of his answer out of one side of his mouth and the other. But out of one side of the mouth, the answer was yes, you could know it. Why? Because it's a divine revelation. Okay? It says, Christ died for our sins. Right? And he that believeth and is baptized will be saved. Do you believe? Well, yeah. Been baptized? Yeah. Well, then you're saved. What's not to know? Huh? In other words, Luther thought you could deduce the answer to this question. Are you currently in, in God's grace from the text of the New Testament, from public revelation? Okay. That position on Luther's part was taken up at the Council of Trent, rejected and anathematized. Okay. You cannot know from God's public revelation that you are in a state of grace, much less that you will be with God in eternity. Why is that? Because no dogma of the church has your name in it. Yes. And every one of God's promises involves a condition on our part. If you believe and are baptized, you will be saved. Yeah? But what's saving faith? If I have saving faith, I'm going to be saved. Right. But what's saving faith? Aha! Luther thought it was just trusting in the divine promise. If you trust the promise, he says he's going to save you. That's the promise, if you, if you believe. That's the promise. Do you trust the promise? Yeah, I trust God's promises, sure. Well, then, if you trust his promise, you're saved. For Catholics, however, on the basis of the New Testament itself, saving faith is not trusting a promise. Okay? Saving faith is also accepting everything God has said the teachings brought to us by the church. And it is also obedience. St. Paul speaks of the obedience of faith. And in a crucial text in Galatians, he says we are saved by faith 
working through love. Okay, remember that? In other words, faith works. Faith is not the alternative to works. Faith itself works. What does it do? It shows charity to the neighbor. It shows charity towards God. It brings forth acts of love, intercession, and so on. Faith activated by love. Faith informed by love. That's our definition of saving faith. So if I look just into the surface of my mind and say, well, gee, do I have in my mind an acceptance of Christ's promise that if I believe, etc., he'll save me? Well, yeah, I, I got that in my head. Yeah, I, that's in there. Okay. But do I love God? Do I love him as he deserves to be loved? Uh-oh. I, frankly, don't want to be the judge of that. Okay? I may feel all lovey-dovey towards God today because nothing is bothering me. <laughs> and when trouble comes, well, I'll look at Job's friends. When trouble comes, you might yield to the temptation. Ah, God, I served you faithfully for years. Why have you done this to me? You don't love me. I'm not going to love you anymore. Right? People are perverse. I'm perverse. You're perverse. He, she, or it is perverse. Never mind. <laughs> Point is... <laughs> um, you do not know by psychological introspection that you have saving faith. Okay? And therefore, you do not know for sure that you have fulfilled the condition for Christ's promise. Right? At least, I can't deduce it from public revelation. And the church also teaches that I cannot know it by scientific proof. What am I supposed to do? Put my head under a microscope and find the grace in there? But other than that, the question, can you know that you are in a state of grace, is, deb is debated among Catholic theologians. Some say yes. You can know, but on other grounds. Okay? You can have a sense of what God has been doing in your life. And in that way, no. Other theologians say, no, you can't know, but you can have a well-grounded conjecture. In other words, you can have good evidence and no good reason to doubt it. Okay? So that's a nice debate among our theologians. Now then, let's go to the other question. Are you predestined to be in God's grace for eternity? Question. Can you know so? And here, all, there is no debate. All of our theologians say no. You cannot know that. Oh, okay, okay, okay. There is. You could get a private revelation. Yep. Same deal about being in a state of grace. You can get a private revelation. And God, apparently, can reveal to some people that, yes, they're predestined. They're in the elect. But that is very rare. And in general, it's not the kind of thing you would want to know. <laughs> Why not? Because the temptation to presumption 
would be overwhelming. I got it made. <laughs> I don't need to practice charity and fasting and all that tough stuff anymore. <laughs> I'm in. No, 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 no. It's much better that we don't know. Can you guess that you are predestined? Not on any solid grounds. Okay? And here again, we have a bit of a quarrel with the Calvinists who were willing to take a person's temporal prosperity as good evidence that they were among the elect. We don't think so. Au contraire. Can you at least hope so? Can you hope that you're predestined? Sure. Not only can you, you must. That's an important part of the theological virtue of hope. Because it means you are hoping in God to save you unto the uttermost. Keep working on you and saving you and forgiving you and so on until it's all over. Grant you final perseverance in good time and so on. Because he loves you, he created you to be with him in heaven. And as St. Augustine said, God will not abandon you unless you abandon him first. All right. I have distinguished the two senses of the question, are you saved? I have defended, defended the distinctness of the two questions. And I've talked about the issue of what you can know as to the answer to each. We all right so far? All right. I put the second question as asking, are you predestined to be in his grace for eternity? And that brings up the point, do we Catholics teach predestination? And the answer is, of course we do. Of course we do. It's in the Bible. Somebody has a Bible here, right? I want you to read Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Etc. Justif Good enough. <laughs> all right. Now, we all know that God foreknows things. Okay? And... It now turns out he also predestines. We also know that God calls. There's the verb to predestine right in between to foreknow and to call. We know that God does the first and the third. Why wouldn't he be doing the second? So do we believe in predestination? Yes. Do we believe in Calvinist predestination? No. Now, I'm going to be getting into this in much more detail next week. But just for the moment, let's make this distinction. For Catholics, there is no positive divine act of reprobation. Okay? God does predestine some to eternal life. He does not predestine or reprobate anyone to be damned. Okay? 
Whereas for Calvin, there is both the positive and the negative. Those are both real acts in God. For us, not so. But more on all that next week. Well, all right, we believe in something called predestination. It's in the Bible. And that brings me to the question, what is it? And I'm going to go to St. Thomas's answer, which is in the first part of the Summa Question 23, Article 1. And uh, read a bit to you. Are human beings predestined by God? Is the title of that question. And he reasons as follows. Look, to reach a goal which you cannot reach by any strength of your own nature. You have to be propelled there by something else, the way an arrow is sent to a target by an archer. A human being, though open to eternal life, is brought to it by being propelled there by God. You can't achieve heaven on your own. Not by being ever so nice, ever so polite, ever so good. No, no, no. Pelagianism is baloney. You cannot work your way in. Nor can you reach it by space travel. (laughs) The only way you can reach eternal life is to be propelled there by divine power. By God. The plan for doing so pre-exists in God, as does the plan arranging everything to achieve a purpose. All right. A plan for some deed to be done existing in the mind of the doer is an advanced status of the plan. It's in him before the deed is done. Thus, the plan for the above-mentioned propelling of human beings to the goal of eternal life is called predestination. Because to destine is to send to a goal. Thus it is clear, he says, that as far as its objects are concerned, predestination is a part of providence. So, conclusion to this issue. Predestination is the part of God's providence that deals with his management of the supernatural gifts of grace and glory. Because glory is the, is the end you can't otherwise reach, and grace is the propellant. So insofar as God's plan for human beings involves their receiving supernatural gifts, which of course some will accept and some won't, Insofar as his plan includes their receiving supernatural gifts, that part of the plan is called predestination. Make sense? Yeah. So, okay, predestination is a part of providence. And now we go on to ask, all right, all right, all right, what's providence? Do we believe in providence? Oh, yeah. How about Ephesians 1.11? Anybody got Ephesians 1.11? Yes, ma'am. In him we were chosen, for in the decree of God, who administers everything according to his will and counsel, we were predestined to praise his glory by being the first to hope in Christ. That's good. That's good. God plans 
everything according to his will and counsel. That means deliberation, plan making. Okay? And uh, I have another text for you. Uh, even better, except it's not in the Protestant canon. Ah, who has the Book of Wisdom? Sometimes called Wisdom of Solomon. Should be right about in the middle of your Bible. And I want you to dig up chapter 14 and verse 3. But your providence, O Father, guides it. For you have furnished even in the sea a road and through the waves a steady path. Yeah. Your providence, O Father, guides it. Meaning guides everything. So God exercises providence and I want to give you the proper English translation for the Latin word providentia. Okay? Our word province, providence, is just changing the spelling of Latin providentia. <laughs> Take the IA off the end. But what it means is advanced planning. Okay? God's providence is his advanced planning for um, his universe of creatures and their successes. And I want you to ask yourself what you are doing when you provide for something or provide against something, you know? When you provide for something, you're foreseeing, okay? And making decisions, you're foreseeing problems, thinking about ways to avoid them, yes? So when you provide for or against something, you see a threat looming up, looming up, advanced planning means thinking of ways to avoid it. Yep. So what you're doing is foreseeing and deciding. And even before the foreseeing, there comes an act of willing. Sure there does. Okay? I don't provide for something like my family's future financial survival without willing that as a good. I will the financial future of my family. Therefore, I foresee what the problems may be and make various decisions about what to do with my enormous funds. <laughs> right. And when I provide against something, okay, the reason I want to provide against it is because it's against something I want. So I have a will, this would be good. Oh, but that's a threat. So I provide against the threat by seeing how it's likely to come about and making decisions. <coughs> is that all clear? Well, when God provides, that is, does advanced planning, He's basically doing the same thing. He has an antecedent will, a basic will, that his creatures thrive. And then he foresees uh, what they're going to be, what they're going to do, what the problems will be. 
And then he plans for their successes and plans against their failures. Does that make sense? Ah, okay. So, two basic elements, let's say, go into providence. One is foreseeing, and the other is willing and deciding. So, that brings us, section D on my paper, since advanced planning presupposes foresight or foreknowledge, we have a problem about knowledge. Does God know how future contingencies will turn out? 30 minutes? It's pretty good. Does he know how future contingencies will turn out? Yeah. Sure. And the most important of those future contingencies are what? Human decisions. Human free choices. Okay? Now then, I better go into a few words about what we mean by a contingency. What do we mean when we say that some event is contingent? You need to know that contingent is the opposite of necessary. Okay? Contingent is the opposite of necessary. What has to be, no matter what, what cannot be otherwise, is necessary. Okay? I'm going to make a huge confession to you. My marriage to my wife was not necessary. <laughs> Fatal as her charms may be. <laughs> I could have done otherwise. And she could certainly have done otherwise. What charms do you see up here? Are we clear on this? And so it is with other decisions that we make freely, whether or not to sign a contract whether or not to go to church, whether or not to say our prayers. These are all free decisions that human beings make. And the point is this. Not one of them can be predicted from their causes. Now then, not only can they all be otherwise, but they're also unpredictable from their causes. This is the difference between your free decision to come here tonight, I hope it was free. You weren't dragooned here, were you? <laughs> There's a difference between your free decision to come here tonight and gravity, <laughs> which is holding you in your seats. Okay? It is a non contingent fact that gravity will hold you in your seat. That's true even in the future, okay? Well, yeah, you can resist, you can get up, but it will hold you to the earth. You will need enormous expenditure of energy to escape the earth's gravity, yes? Yes, 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 yes. Gravity is a cause that works in nature and it makes certain effects predictable. 
Okay? It makes it predictable that you will stay in your chair, barring other motions on your part. You are not suddenly going to start floating near the ceiling. Gravity precludes that. Am I right? So there's a predictable effect of gravity. That's not a contingent event. That's physically necessary. But what you're going to think while you're sitting in that chair, like, I wish this guy would shut up. (laughs) Or I like that last point. That is not predictable from the laws of gravity or for any, from any other scientific law, all right? Now, uh, there is some doubt about this uh, among certain sorts of scientists, but the doubts are all baloney. Right around the year 1800, there was a famous physicist in France named Ferdinand Laplace. And he maintained that every event in the future history of the universe was utterly predictable and would come about necessarily, given the past states of the universe. And he said, if I knew the position and velocity of every particle in the universe at the beginning, I could predict every event to the end of time, including your thoughts. Okay. Well, see... Poor old Laplace. He never heard of quantum events. He never heard of Heisenberg's indeterminacy. He never heard of the unpredictable decay of atomic nuclei. There are all kinds of things, even in physical nature, that are just not predictable from previous states, and which therefore are not necessary events. So not everything that happens will be necessary. Much that happens, according to today's science and according to the Catholic Church, will be contingent. Okay? Non-necessary. It will happen, but it could be otherwise. Could have been otherwise. All right? Now then, St. Thomas takes up this question. Does God know future contingencies? In the first part of the Summa, question 14, article 13. This text is one of the reasons why I declined to have all the passages I'm going to cite typed out to give you tonight. Because it goeth on forever. (laughs) It is a huge article. Even the body of the article is very big. And um, in a nutshell... St. Thomas's position is this. Yes, God knows future contingencies, but not because he can predict them. Okay? It's not because he knows the particles in the universe better than we do, or knows your psyche better than you yourself do. No, 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 no. God does not know your future decisions by prediction. Well, then how does he know them? Aquinas' answer is this. We cannot know the future because our knowing is in time. We can know what is a present reality to us. 
or was a reality a while back. But we cannot know what is not yet a reality for us. And future events are not yet realities for us, right? God, on the other hand, knows in eternity. Okay? And eternity is like an infinite, eternal present that embraces every moment of time. So the reason God knows what you will do tomorrow is because your tomorrow is already there in his eternity. He knows what you will do because he sees it. Okay. Difficult answer. Very difficult. And Aquinas gives a famous analogy to help people understand it. He says, look, if you are moving along in a parade, okay, you can see a few people ahead of you, but not very far ahead. You can turn around and see some people behind you, but not very far behind. From your position in the parade, you can't see the whole parade. And the parade goes by any given point successively, right? But suppose you were on a mountaintop. You could look down and see the whole parade at once. You could know, you, you could know if you were on that mountaintop, who's coming sixth after somebody you know, who's coming seventh after somebody you know, and so on. All right? It's a good analogy. It will get the point across. But it leaves a huge mystery. How can one and the same event be not yet actual in time and yet also be actual in eternity? Aquinas holds that an event has two modes of being. One in God's eternity and one in time. We only know them as they unfold in time. But God knows them in his eternity where everything is present. Yep. Now, I'm not going to get into the technical details. My footnotes to this question in my translation, this article in my translation, go on forever. And some of the details are very technical indeed. But um, uh, what you do need to understand, you can ask me questions about it this week or next week. What you do need to understand is that modern tense logic will justify Aquinas' position. Okay? It needs some tenseless sentences, but that's not a problem. Okay. So, God does know how future contingencies will turn out. Oh, by the way, and his knowing them doesn't make them non-contingent. Ah, watch this. The fact that God knows something doesn't make it necessary. Makes it certain. Yes, but not necessary. That gives me three terms to put on the board. You thought I'd never write up here? Yes. A is being necessary. B is being contingent. 
and see is being sure and certain, by which I mean known with certainty. Now then, I hope you see the importance of refusing to identify A and C. If, necess if necessariness is what it takes for anything to be sure and certain, then if God's knowledge of the future is certain, everything in the future is necessary. And nothing is contingent. <sighs> Bad news. Okay. But if they're not the same, if being necessary is one trait, and being known with certainty is another, then there's no problem. Okay? No difficulty. God can know with certainty things that remain in their nature contingent. Okay? And the fact that he's sure about them doesn't make, doesn't make them cease being contingent. All right. I have an illustration. Yes. Let's suppose that you have, I'm talking to the gentleman, let's suppose that you have a sloppy habit. <laughs> Is your wife's tolerance of that sloppy habit contingent? Sure. Because now you see it and now you don't. <laughs> it doesn't constantly exist, right? It can be otherwise, oh dear. So yeah, my wife's tolerance of this or that sloppy habit of mine is contingent. Do I know of a certainty when she will be tolerant? Sometimes I do. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> I may have to be on my sick bed, but there are times when I can know with certainty. Okay? And your wife's love for you is contingent. But I hope you're certain of it. Certainty does not take away contingency. Are you right? Okay. Likewise, God's knowledge of your future choices, including your future choices with respect to the use of his grace, doesn't make those choices of yours necessary. Watch it. A is not C. I gotta start wrapping up here. I said not long ago that advanced planning involves willing and decisions. That's right. So we have problems about volition. And issues of volition will be uh, among the last items I have time to deal with tonight. Okay. Question number one. Does God's will always get what it wants? And St. Thomas's answer is yes. Romans 9.19 can you find that? Romans 9 and 19. That's in the New Testament Catholics. 
Ah, ah, ah. Ginger again. Okay. Are you a convert? <laughs> I'm well trained, indoctrinated. <laughs> you will say to me, why then does he find fault? For who can oppose his will? Who can oppose his will? As it said in the good old King James, who resisteth the will of God? Answer, nobody. Okay. God's will is rewarded with the success of what he wants. And Aquinas has not only theological authority for that. Uh, Psalm 115 verse 3 is also another good point here. But he also has a philosophical argument. Look, remember God is the very first cause of everything. So God's causality affects everything. It affects all subsequent events. Okay? Now how can a cause, and God's will is a cause, how can a cause be deprived of its effect? Well, some other cause interferes with it. Okay? I have a will that something happens, but my will is not a first and universal cause of anything. Therefore, anybody else's will may interfere. Usually does. I'm looking at her. <laughs> um, but if I were a first cause, so that everything were under my exercise of causation, nothing could escape my influence as the first cause. That's his philosophical argument. All right? And then he's got the biblical basis for it. And now you need to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. I'm not going back to Ginger because she cheats with those little tabs there in her Bible. It's not fair. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Who wills everyone to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth? Yes. God wills everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. <laughs> well, Aquinas discusses this in the first part of the Summa, question 19, article 6. And guess what the uh, first objection is? First Timothy, God wills everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Yeah, but that doesn't always happen. Ergo, God's will doesn't always get what it wants. Right? Okay? Well, there's a long answer to that objection in St. Thomas. Let me get it open in front of me here. Because I can't, I can't take you through every bit of this. But we've got to do enough. Uh-huh. Question 19, Article 6. Is God's will always carried out? And um, the answer to that objection is borrowed by St. Thomas from St. John of Damascus. Thank you, Eastern Church. John of Damascus wrote this famous book on the Orthodox faith, De Fide Orthodoxa. It was known in the West in the 13th century, but translated into Latin. If you have a copy of it, it's book 2, chapter 29, where 
um, St. John of Damascus takes up this issue. And he says, this verse is talking about God's antecedent will, not his consequent will. Okay? To understand this, you need to recall that each and every object is willed by God according to how it is good. A thing can be good in its first consideration, looked at independently, but have the opposite evaluation, that is, be bad, in connection with something else, looked at in one or another connection with something else. And that's a subsequent consideration of it. Okay? Aquinas illustrates with the case of a judge. The judge is an upright sort of a fellow. The judge appreciates the goodness of human life. He sees that the accused person before him is a human being, has a valuable mode of being called human life. The judge thinks that's good. Antecedently speaking, the judge would like the guy to be found innocent. Let go. Keep living. However, the judge now can, let's call that guy Smith. Smith, good, yeah, nice, he's a good human being. Well, he's a human being, that's good. But now we will consider Mr. Smith in connection with Mr. Jones, whom he has recently murdered. Oh dear. <clears throat> in that respect, Jones is bad. I mean, Smith is bad. Jones was the victim, right? I get <laughs> in that respect, Smith was bad. All right. <clears throat> and while it is good for an innocent man to live, it is not good for a man to live if he's a criminal and a danger to the community. Okay. By the way, Aquinas has both those conditions in here. You've got to be not only a criminal, but also a danger to the community. Then the judge can will his execution. That's not all that different from John Paul II. Yeah. So, antecedently, the judge prefers that the guy live. But in light of subsequent considerations, like his criminal record, the judge can reach an opposite volition. Does everybody see? Uh -huh. And so it is with 1 Timothy. Antecedently, God understands how good it would be to have all of you with him in heaven. Sure. Sure. He wants you to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Of course. But, viewed in various connections, like the number of times you have rejected his grace, the number of times you have insulted his church, the number of times you have committed crimes against the believers, and unbelievers for that matter, God looks at you in those subsequent considerations and says, uh, 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 uh. This, it would not be good to have this fellow with me in eternity. Does everybody see? Okay. 
antecedent versus consequent volition. Okay? And consequent volition is what is efficacious. That's what is sure to come about. God's antecedent will does not always come about. His efficacious will, his consequent will, is what always comes about. Okay? Okay. Next issue concerning God's will. I'm almost done. Don't despair. Is everything that happens God's will? Answer, no. Okay? No. Not if you mean according to his antecedent will. And not if you mean that God wills everything. God is omniscient. He knows everything. But pardon my Latin, he's not omnivolent. <coughs> he does not will everything. I think I've told this story before. We uh, once had a financial officer at the college who managed to take the college's funds and invest them in a fly-by-night outfit and lost us, I don't know, $800,000, something like that. Lost the money. And uh, he didn't want to admit that right away. But, it, you know, it's hard to hide. <laughs> and so eventually uh, it came out and his defense was, well, God didn't want us to have that money. Uh -huh. No, no, no. Okay. If God wills it, it happens. That's right. But turn the sentence around. If it happens, God wills it, no. Watch that. Not everything is God's will. And now I have two more issues on this sheet. But I have no time. Ah, <laughs> oh, there's Sabatino back there urging me to go on and on and on. No, I'm not going to go on and on and on. I'm just going to summarize real quick. In the same question 19, article 8, Aquinas asked the question, does God's willing an event make it necessary? We have already agreed that if he wills it, it happens. Efficaciously, it happens. Yeah. Does God's efficacious will make that same event necessary? And the answer is no. It does not. And then there's a parallel question about providence. Does the fact that an event is in God's plan make it necessary that the event happen? Answer, no. Aha. Does the fact that an event in God's plan make it certain that the event happens? Yep. Does it make it necessary that the event happen? No. What did I tell you? Being necessary is quite different from being certain. Surely known or certain. They're not the same. Okay? And now I'm going to give you a most unpleasant dose of modal logic. This is going to be quick. Very quick. Okay? If God wills it, it happens. That's a conditional sentence, right? 
If God wills it, it happens. Hmm? Nah. Don't worry about it. If God wills it, it happens. That's a conditional sentence. I would agree that the whole sentence should have a box in front of it. Because the box is how we logicians indicate that a point is necessary. This is a necessary conditional. If God wills it, it happens. If God plans it, it comes about. If God knows it, it's true. Okay? Now then, does it follow that if God wills it, it necessarily happens? And the answer is no. This is where ordinary English will deceive you. You will necessarily, if he wills it, it happens. And then, you, then you'll turn around and try to paraphrase that and say, well, if he wills it, then it necessarily happens. Not so. Don't try uh, sloppy paraphrases. The whole conditional is necessary. And here is the law of modal logic that you need to learn. Suppose it's necessary that if P, whatever that is, then Q. Okay? And the consequence of that is if P, I'm sorry, if the antecedent is necessary, then so is the consequent. Okay? Suppose the whole thing is necessary. Now I admit that if the first part, the if clause, is necessary, then the rest is necessary. All right? But if the first part is not necessary, then there's no reason for the last part to be necessary. Huh? This is the law. It's called axiom K, by the way. Axiom K. I don't know why it's axiom K, special K. I don't know. <laughs> but that's what we call it in the literature. And it's an incredibly important point. All contemporary logicians acknowledge it. Everybody knows that you can go from necessarily if P then Q to if necessarily P then necessarily Q. But you cannot go to if P then necessarily Q. No, 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 no. <clears throat> Can't be done. You're mystified. <laughs> Modal logic mystifies many people. But this is a true and very important principle of it. Okay? And um, let me give you one final example that will hopefully convince you. Okay. Given my wife's character, okay, which is very good, I'm going to say, if she marries me, she loves me. Okay? And I'm going to say that's a necessary truth. Given who she is. Necessarily, if she marries me, she loves me. I'm okay with that. She married me. Does it follow that she necessarily loves me? Oh, no. Her love is contingent. 
Well, because her marrying me was contingent. She didn't necessarily marry me, so she doesn't necessarily love me either. Does everybody see? Yes. If I eat too much, I will get fat. Let's admit that that's a necessary truth. Yeah. Laws of nutrition or whatever. If I eat too much, I get fat. Do I necessarily eat too much? No. Therefore, it's not necessary that I get fat. And if I do, in fact, eat too much, it's still not necessary <coughs> that I get fat. What are you trying to tell me? Dieting is a waste of time? You're trying to tell me I'm fated to weigh 300 pounds soon? No, no, no. Nothing necessary about it. Does everybody see? Yeah. So when we all meet again, we get into the mystery of predestination, properly so-called, when all of these issues of modal logic and providence and God's antecedent and permissive will and so on will come into play. So I hope I can tie the loose ends up for you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you very Thank you, Dr. Marshner, for a uh, brain-scratching presentation. Again, we're very appreciative. Uh, listen, don't despair. Don't despair. Because uh, Melanie is in our office as we speak, and she will be posting the video either tonight or tomorrow. So you can review this three or four or five, maybe six times before next week. I highly recommend you do so. All right, Dr. Marshall informed me that he would have rather just done Q&A next week, but I said they would have forgotten everything that you taught them this week. So we're going to just do a very short, maybe two questions. I might sneak a third in there. We'll see what happens. Uh, usual rules apply. The question is one sentence long. has to do with the subject at hand. has a question mark on the end. If you have a take, take a breath, you broke my rule. And please let me hold the microphone for you so that we get a good recording for those watching online. Please post your question immediately because if you don't get it in now, you're not going to get it in. And let us know where you're writing in from also. Thank you. Okay, who dares disturb the great Oz? <laughs> When you began your speech, your talk, and you were talking about predestination as, yes, there is predestination, I guess you said the way I, I understood it. How does that comply with our teaching of a freely given gift of free will? Okay. <clears throat> you are already anticipating where I need to go next week, <laughs> which is fine. Uh, remember that the fact that an event is in God's plan makes it certain that the event will happen, but doesn't make it necessary. Okay? The event does not become necessary. And that means the fact that an event is in God's plan does not affect, does not interfere with its being freely chosen. Okay? I got, I got to say a lot more about this. 
But remember, freedom is a form of contingency. Ah. I want to say, I need to say more about freedom next week, a lot more. But right, predestination um, uh, does not take away free will. And I'll have to explain why. Next. Dr. Marshall, we have someone writing in online. Peter Barron doesn't tell us where he's writing in from. He says, but he says, where is the good news of Christ in your presentation? As described, it seems all uncertain and tenuous, which is not much of a comfort. Well, I don't know what this guy's been smoking while I've been talking. Uh, we've got the, the scriptures from Romans, from Ephesians, from the Psalms. Uh, these are positive certitudes. And all I'm doing is defending those certitudes against objections, preparing the way to do that by drawing some careful distinctions. If somebody doesn't have the patience for distinctions, well, he or she has no business studying theology. We do love you, Peter. We do love you. With God knowing the outcomes of everything that happens, is it kind of like game theory where he knows everything that could happen? So that kind of makes it the, uh, the certitude? Um, God not only knows what will happen, but also what could happen or would happen under various conditions. Okay? And um, it is in a way... Um, it is in a way contingent what God knows. Namely in this way. If he had chosen to make a very different sort of a world, there would have been a lot different stuff to know. And the content of God's knowledge would have been different. Similarly, the content of God's will could have been different if he had willed different things uh, from the outset. This is a point that needs some care. God's will does not change over time, okay? But God's will um, uh, bears upon what he has freely chosen and foreknown in eternity, okay? God knows what will be done before the universe starts ticking. This is advanced planning. He knows the sequence of events. He knows what will happen. But um, he doesn't change his mind about things over time. So all of his providence is advanced planning. Okay. He doesn't change his will or mind over time because he is not a puppet to be dangled by creatures. And um, God um, just doesn't change his mind, not in time anyway. Okay? So uh, th this, is, this is hard to explain. We call this counterfactual. Uh, to talk about God's freedom in what he knows and in what he wills and what he plans requires counterfactuals. If God had chosen something else, he would have known other things. He would have planned other things. 
Okay? Yeah. Uh, and, oh, another point I better make sure, because this, this is, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a quick road into heresy near here. Is God a necessary being? Yes. Uh -huh. Is God's being the same as his knowing? Yes. Yeah. I know yours isn't. You can manage to be without knowing much of anything. I did it for years. <laughs> but God's being uh, uh, and his knowing are... I, Identical in that um, he uh, uh, his his activity is always his intellect in act, so he exists and his intellect is always in act, and so is his will. So God's being is his knowing, is his willing. Ha! But his being is necessary, right? So doesn't it then follow that his knowing is necessary, <coughs> and his willing is necessary? And the answer is, what are you talking about? <laughs> are you talking about an act of intellection, an act of volition? Yeah, sure, that has to be there. Are you talking about the content known or the content willed? That's not necessary. Uh -huh. So never get the idea that because God is a necessary being, everything he wills is necessarily willed. And so, oh, Everything in the universe comes about necessarily. No, 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 no. Short trip into fatalism and determinism and heresy. Thank you, Dr. Marshner. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>